Bookworm Games, Episode 32, Smiles and Tears. Welcome. We return today to the Cave of the Past, traveling back to an indefinite time for the final confrontation with Gigas. Generally, I've tried to keep the episodes to sections of the game which could be completed in a half hour or so. But if you're playing along, you'll want to set aside a little more time for this. I've also tried to avoid simply singing the game's praises. But I have to say, as a video game experience, the final boss fight of Earthbound and what comes after is unique, mesmerizing, a fitting end to this long journey. So it's well worth the time to play it. And so, our discussion of the ending will also likely carry over into the next episode, where I'll invite you to question and comment with me live, Sunday, September 16th at 5pm Pacific Time. Send questions about the game as a whole, about the series, and I'll do my best to wrap up any loose end threads from earlier conversations then as well. So, from Saturn Valley, we warped to the Cave of the Past where the wreckage of the Phase Distorter 1 had been visible since you passed through the Lost Underworld. Remember what the Sphinx said. A place out of time is beyond the dark and is even farther beyond the Lost Underworld. I'm not so sure about the relative distances involved, but one mystery, at least, is cleared up at this point, that it was Pokey who stole this device and crashed it there. Ness and his friends arrive in the Phase Distorter 2, finding Mr. Saturn kidnapped once again, and a horn of life among the machinery. But beyond a crooked metallic tentacle, there's no way forward. Nor can you go back, though, as Dr. Andonuts has warned you, and he seals this with his arrival in the Face Disorder 3, which is ready to transport you back in time once you're transferred into your robot forms. As he tells his son, Activate the Face Disorder 3 by your own hand thereby following your destiny. As we'll see, this attitude towards destiny, taken by the party and the player, freely choosing to follow it, encouraged by its promise and by the support and relationships of role models like BuzzBuzz Buzz and others, is the opposite of Pokey's attitude and his situation with respect to the destiny foretold by the Apple of Enlightenment. Dr. Andonut's speeches throughout this part of the game are elevated, glorious, and somewhat ludicrous, like the quick succession of phase distorter models and the abrupt switch to the robot bodies. But once you've crossed this threshold, the point of no return, things hurtle to their conclusion. The horn of life and the crooked metal cone are echoed orally as soon as you arrive in the past by random blasts of distorted sound, accentuating your loneliness in this emptiness. The main source of noise is your party clomping along like medieval knights in full armor, indistinguishable from one another aside from Ness's baseball cap. If you choose to save your progress at this point, your dad notices that you sound as though you have a cold and hopes you get well soon. A poignant and touching remark in a very different way from Dr. Andonut's eager heroics, though they both attest to the love which they have for their sons. Beyond this last save point, where you can also recover freely as many times as you need, leveling up as necessary, or reaping dropped items from enemies if you like, there extends a kind of black and white landscape painting 
though instead of meditative scenes of mountain peaks and forests in a mist of blank paper, the gray-green negative space of the screen outlines a jagged but unmistakable path onward. The enemies here are nothing new. Shamblers fire beams and flash betas. Ghosts of starmen and final starmen exude technological superiority and launch star storms and smiles. Octobots steal. The atomic robots replenish their fuel until they explode like bazookas on expiring. Beyond several turns, you can get the legendary bat from a final gift box. And there's several clearings where magic butterflies flutter reassuringly, the only hints of color in the void. Orbs floating at the end of the path, reflecting like funhouse mirrors the eerie wastes, warp you deeper into the, this time and space of the cave. You can toil at finding and defeating the bionic krakens in one of these areas if you're after a gutsy bat. But much like the sort of kings, getting one is more of a testament to luck or bloody-minded stubbornness than to skill. Even vanity and acquisitiveness and compulsive completionism and, in short, you don't need to worry about it. But it would be cool. I've never managed it. Coming to an upthrust wall at the dead end of the cave, what looks at first like a spotlight of shadow is actually a doorway. Through the narrow slit in the wall, the ambient music turns ominous, expectant. Within, your party treads the worm-like, intestine-like path, pulsing underfoot where stray veins go branching and rejoining the main channel over the blackness. It is red-pink and organic, yet feels more like a cave at last than the vast emptiness outside. There are no enemies here, which is part of the tension. This is what they have all been guarding, all the enemies throughout the game have been sent or manipulated by this terrible mass of life, using the evil in their minds for its goal of universal devastation, but they avoid its presence, whereas you inexorably direct your steps towards it. At the end of the living road is a wall or womb of tissue. On touching it, the central pinhole like an eye opens and Ness's face emerges, regarding you. This shakes the screen, and another exception to the rule appears, where no one else dares approach. Pokey, wearing a flashy suit and operating a spider mech, materializes and drops down to confront you. His dialogue here is instructive. Ness, are you surprised? It's me, Pokey. I only assist the strong and able. That's Pokey. You guys look pathetic. The Apple of Enlightenment has already made a prediction. But I won't let what it predicted take place. You guys will be beaten by Gigas. Gigas will be stronger, a more powerful entity than any other. Why? Because of me. I was led by Gigas, and now I'm here. The Apple of Enlightenment couldn't predict this. Master Gigas. No, Gigas is no longer the wielder of evil. He has become the embodiment of evil itself, which he cannot control on his own. He is the evil power. If you are surprised, it might be from seeing your own face at the center of the universal cosmic destroyer, rather than from encountering Pokey at his side. Pokey has attached himself to the strong all along, from Carpenter to Monotoli, and now Gigas, and he has accompanied the Mani Mani statue, 
Hitherto, the embodiment of evil, whether standing behind liar exaggerate or car painter and motivating or symbolizing their creepy interest in Ness and Paula, or creating the illusion of Moonside which deranged Monotoli and led Everdread to his death wound in the alley, and finally appearing as Ness's nightmare in the Sea of Eden. Pokey also, first of all, accompanied Ness on the night the meteorite fell, even before Buzz Buzz instigated the adventure. And that reminder, as well as the point about Ness's nightmare, might also make us less surprised to see Ness's face on Gigas. So perhaps the most surprising thing after all is not that Pokey is here, but that he will finally stand and fight. Despite knowing about the Apple of Enlightenment's prediction, and despite all that has happened on your adventure, presumably he is not privy to all of it, though, like the coffee and tea breaks and the insights from Magicant. Pokey believes he can control the evil power and overcome the heroes. He thinks he is on the stronger side, never mind that it's wrong. He thinks freedom is defined in opposition to fate, by the chaotic destructiveness of the monster wearing his neighbor's face. Throughout the battle, Gigas manifests as the background art itself, embodying that which has been in the background of the violence and strife all along. In the first stage of the battle, he is accompanied by the heavily armed Pokey, who in turn stands as the epitome of all the people Ness and his friends have faced, whose desires and meanness have been worked upon by Gigas. Only Pokey, it seems, has done them one better by betraying all the universe to Gigas to Gigas's aid knowingly. His face looks blue behind the glass of the spider mech cockpit. Ness's face looms huge in the center of the screen. Traditional video game boss music plays, starting out 8-bit style, before raging with rock guitar stylings and futuristic production. A musical wave of awesome, which echoes Gigas's use of Ness's own rock and sigh. Pokey emits stinky gas to lower your party's defense, then charges forward. The same move Buzz Buzz and your dog King and your Courage Flying Man have used to attack, connecting for heavy damage. Attacking Gigas at this stage only causes an eerily pure chime sound and deals the damage from the attack to Ness, for somehow he is Ness. The psychic link between the hero and the villain Makes sense given Gigas' obsession with the Apple of Enlightenment's prophecy, and how, just as deep within Ness stood the figure of the nightmare, so here, at the heart of Gigas, by Ness's presence brought to the surface, is the heroic potential in the shape of Ness himself. The way Gigas can win, he seems to think, is by becoming the hero of the prophecy. It would show a sophisticated, if cynical, understanding of the workings of fate, the sense of humor of the weird sisters, so to speak, to win through such a technicality. And ironically, Pokey undoes this. In his desire for power at all costs, for self-aggrandizement, no matter who that self is, he shows a catastrophic ignorance of the sort of story he is in. Once you deal enough damage to his spider carapace, he escapes from the battle, still tauntingness, 
and he turns off the devil's machine. This reveals Gigas' true form, or rather formlessness, an empty black hole where Ness's face had been, surrounded by the wavy, menacing lines of the battle background, beginning to blur into still more unsettling patterns of red fever dreams. Though Pokey is no longer a target in the battle, it seems he remains somewhere close by throughout it, off to the side, observing with mounting alarm, not unlike the player, yourself. I understand you guys are already claiming to be heroes. Well, it is a gazillion years too early for you to oppose Gigas. You must feel pretty stupid to keep fighting without even knowing what Gigas looks like. If you were to ever see Gigas, you'd be so petrified with fear, you'd never be able to run away. That's how scary it is. So, do you want me to turn off the devil's machine? Well, prepare to be amazed. Here's where Ness's face disappears, and things grow murky. So, isn't this terrifying? I'm terrified too. Gigas cannot think rationally anymore, and he isn't even aware of what he is doing now. His own mind was destroyed by his incredible power. What an almighty idiot! Yep, that's what he is. <laughs> and you, you will be just another meal to him. There's so much there. Those last trailing futures echo Ness's own doubts on the wall of Lumine Hall. The image of a meal projects Pokey's obsession with food and the body. His name is Porky in the original. He highlights the contrast with Ness, whose self-knowledge unlocked his latent powers in the big level up after Magicant, where the sanctuary spots lent their gifts to his own, by saying Gigas's mind was destroyed by his power. The epithet Almighty Idiot makes him sound like an atheist's idea of God, and the idea that seeing the raw power of the unknown will petrify even a hero without the intervention of art, technology, harkens back to the myth of the Medusa. Immediately after Pokey's taunts, the battle goes on, Gigas's red swirlies having wholly pervaded the background. Gigas's attacks from this stage on are, so the game says, incomprehensible. Their escaping cognitive categories or names seems to be part of their power. Effectively, they seem to be varieties of lightning, freeze, paralysis, and the like. Despite his amorphousness, however, Gigas can now be damaged directly. After several turns, Pokey will reappear. Heh, 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 heh. You must really be at the end of your rope. In this bizarre dimension, you four are the only force fighting for justice. And here you stand, waiting to be burned up with all the rest of the garbage of this universe. Ha! That's so sad I can't help but shed a tear. You know, my heart is beating incredibly fast. I must be experiencing absolute terror. Do you want to scream for help here in the dark? Ha 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 ha! Why not call your mommy, Ness? Say, Mommy, Daddy, I'm so frightened. I think I'm gonna wet my pants. I know you have telepathy or something, so just try and call for help, you pathetically weak heroes of so-called justice. No one will help you now. Ha 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 ha! Uh, don't worry, your pitiful suffering will soon be over. Pokey again gives you just what you need. The hint that you need to pray. Presumably, a player would also 
eventually stumble upon this solution from sheer desperation. Incidentally, as you go through each of the friend's special commands, spy, mirror, prey, you might ask, what does Ness have? Auto fight, run away, but whoever is first in the party will have these if Ness falls. Some of his sigh, though the other party members don't learn them, are shared by bosses like Ness's nightmare in Gigas. But yes, Ness is unique in at least one respect. Only he can become homesick. Getting a craving for his favorite food, to hear his mom's voice, would seem to be akin to the player longing to come back to the real world, as your dad also reminds you to do when you call him. This idea of privation, of a lack, is a critically important one, because it puts a name to that which is not. Gigas is a way to conceptualize evil, even if it does not fully grasp how terrifying it is. This is the way the number zero is very different from, and much more sophisticated than, the concept of no, one of the first words that kids learn, or the not, the not, absence, nothingness. Zeros radiate out from Gigas's empty core, striking at your mighty party, while he speaks words of woe, calling to you by name. Drawn out or repeated, panting, groaning, crying out, it hurts, that he's sad, this is wrong, that he's happy, telling you to go back, that is, to do the impossible. All along, he's also talking to himself, the form of himself which is irrevocably lost now due to Pokey's spiteful sabotage. This is all to say that the Gigas fight is a surreal dramatization of the concept of evil, representing the privation of the good in Gigas himself, evil as the lost, the nothing yearning for the good which it cannot by its nature be, and representing in Pokey the willful choice to be evil by claiming to possess and wield what is evil, implying that evil is, that it has being in itself, and that that being is powerful, rather than the self-defeating perversion of being. How do you fight against such nothingness? The game suggests that adventures inspired by wisdom, courage, and friendship will take you through smiles and tears to confront it, that you must overcome it in yourself through the power of memory, imagination, and understanding your place, or rather your many places in the world, and that doing so unlocks your true potential. But all this still brings you up against seeing the truly incomprehensible nature of evil, the mystery more inscrutable than the physics of time travel or the biotech transfer of mind and spirit to a robot. Both potent images, in a meta sort of way, of what it is to play this old video game. To do the impossible, to beat it, as we say, and to beat the game, takes the miracle, the prayer of the past, reaching people, praying in the future. As BuzzBuzz returned from the future to set you on your way, as Paula called to Ness and then Jeff, as Pooh overcame the spirit of the ancestors at the place of Mu, non-being, through making himself open to it, 
acceptance, love of the other, the completely and essentially other, and to love to relate to which is a paradox, for it is the internal in time. And it turns out the love, the prayer, the miracle is mutual, a relationship, an activity rather than an entity, the opposite, if you like, of Gigas, the infinite over against the zero, the light in the darkness. Prayers come from Paula first, each round against Gigas's wavier form. And the first to respond is the team of scientists at Saturn Valley, with Saturns gathered around. It seems they feel something new and respond with prayers. Gigas's defenses become unstable. His swirly, scary red faces in the background multiply still more and move in patterns across the screen faster. Next, the prayer reaches the runaway five, who take a moment from chatting up the bathers hanging out in summers to pay, pray for their friends. Third, the oval scene opens on Polestar Preschool, where the kids and Paula's parents pray. Fourth, are Tony and the Snowwood crew. Each time, the damage dealt to Gigas mounts along with his protestations. Fifth are the ladies of Dalam. Sixth, Frank at the burger shop in Onet. Seventh, the view opens on Ness's house, where his family gathers in the dark room with a familiar song beginning to play. The music of the battle returns. The background grows still closer to pure static and the music more discombobulated. In the next prayer, the eighth, Paula says she can't think of anyone else. Perhaps she's been seeing more visions than these, the seven we've seen just representative of others, like the ten does in Dra Dungeon Man praying too. And her call is absorbed in the darkness. Maybe this is a, sh a way of showing how Gigas responds to prayer then. Throughout the battle, after all, his supplications are to Ness and are accompanied by the incomprehensible attacks which deal some damage to your party as the prayers do to him. If he is the darkness absorbing the desperate eighth plea, perhaps some of his non-being is being brought into being. Wouldn't the destruction of nothing be the creation of something? He is, if nothing else, the experience of that terrifying nothing and the miracle of something coming from it, good from evil. There is a ninth prayer, if you don't lose hope or your metaphysical footing, but keep trying, a prayer that reaches someone whose name gradually is revealed. The player, the one Tony asked for, for his project, in which the game when you're back in Tenda Village, after beating Stonehenge, confirms. And in a way, this is also true, that the player surely acts as though they are touched to the heart, praying for the kids whom they have never met, prayers repeated fourfold, whose efficacy is four times dramatized by staggering hit points of damage to Gigas. The music swells like a storm. The end is nigh. Pokey appears one more time. Ness, now I... Well, it's going to seem like I'm running away, but perhaps I'll just sneak away to another era to think about my next plan. It's a good bet that we will see each other again. All right, I'll be seeing you. So now which one of us do you think is the cool guy? The opposite, then, of wisdom, courage, and friendship, without which we have much less understanding of what these qualities really are, and a much less interesting story. 
This is what Pokey and Gigas provide and play out. Paradoxically, their doomed venture occasions the miraculous prayers, which are the only thing that can beat Gigas and end the fight. That prayer could affect the game, that miracles could enter into something so trivial, seems counter to logic, like all miracles. Or maybe suggests that logic is greater than we, scientists in Saturn Valley, yet understand. Love is stronger than death, something the apple of enlightenment seemingly accounted for, whereas Pokey did not. Even in the cast credits, his sprite will go sneaking off the side of the screen, leaving an absence above his name. Fittingly, Gigas does not appear in the credits, which attests to his being a kind of non-entity, ultimately a name for those drives, desires, passions, and people which lead them to evil acts. But the credits don't roll right away. The screen freaks out and dissolves more and more back into the red static that opens the title screen. Longer and longer stints of it with loud, painful wails and harsh explosions till finally it's over. If you look away, you'll miss a brief glimpse then of Ness's family again, as if they've been playing the game in their living room right alongside you and yours. The war against Gigas is over, the game text reads, when the screen opens again over the fallen bodies of the robots outside the narrow cave. Lights, like those which illuminated the soundstone, arise from each of the still forms in turn and fly away, and the scene shifts back to Saturn Valley, where the chosen four, lying on the grass, one by one become ensouled once more, Pooh, Jeff, Paula, and Ness, somehow still wearing his cap, revive, come to, and look around as the music softly plays. There's a pun or two now I'd point out here as we get into the discussion of the music once more. It has to do with Gigas' name in Japanese and in translation. In Mother, the game Earthbound is a sequel to, and for which a translation was made, though the game never saw release in the U.S., the final boss is called Gig, spelled variously in English, but apparently pronounced something like Gig in Japanese. It's like the sounds Belch makes when he speaks of the contradiction inherent in defeating the ultimate evil, which I think is a much better way of approaching the question of what Gigas is than even the most elaborate discussion of the plot. Here's Belch. York, 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 there's a prophecy that a boy will destroy Master Gigas. Heeg, 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 you make me laugh so hard. If Master Gigas is scared of someone, he would have to be worse than the greatest evil. Garg, gah, garg, gah, gah, gah. I'll take you down big time, so get ready for the worst fight of your life, etc. With that said, you can find artful theories and nitty-gritty arguments on such matters as Geeg's relation to Gigas, their motivations to destroy the world, and how they're related Darth Vader-esque to the heroes in Mother and Earthbound, and so on. But I think the letter from Ness's mom sums it up beautifully. Dear Ness, how are you? Since you left home on your journey, things have changed around here. For example, I don't have as much laundry. Also, we don't seem to eat steak as much as we used to. I heard that you defeated some universal evil character. What was it? Googie? Or something like that? Well, that sounds really great. I want to hear all the details, so hurry home, okay? 
Tracy, King, and I are waiting for you. Love, Mama. She takes the name Etoy thought so horrifying as to stand for ultimate evil, to evoke his traumatic glimpse of that adult movie, and renders it as baby talk. That baby Ness was, which Gigas was not. On the topic of baby talk and imitation of sounds, you might want to see Augustine on this. This comes from his Confessions, Book 1, Section 8. The next stage in my life as I grew up was boyhood. Or would it be truer to say that boyhood overtook me and followed upon my infancy? Not that my infancy left me, for if it did, where did it go? All the same, it was no longer there, because I ceased to be a baby, unable to talk, and was now a boy with the power of speech. I can remember that time, and later on I realized how I had learnt to speak. It was not my elders who showed me the words by some set system of instruction, in the way that they taught me to read not long afterwards. But, instead, I taught myself by using the intelligence which you, my God, gave to me. For when I tried to express my meaning by crying out and making various sounds and movements so that my wishes should be obeyed, I found that I could not convey all that I meant or make myself understood by everyone whom I wished to understand me. So my memory prompted me. I noticed that people would name some object and then turn towards whatever it was that they had named. I watched them and understood that the sound they made when they wanted to indicate that particular thing was the name which they gave to it, and their actions clearly showed what they meant, for there is a kind of universal language, consisting of expressions of the face and eyes, gestures and tones of voice, which can show whether a person means to ask for something and get it, or refuse it and have nothing to do with it. So, by hearing words arranged in various phrases and constantly repeated, I gradually pieced together what they stood for, and when my tongue had mastered the pronunciation, I began to express my wishes by means of them. In this way, I made my wants known to my family, and they made theirs known to me, and I took a further step into the stormy life of human society, although I was still subject to the authority of my parents and the will of my elders." But, oh God, my God, I now went through a period of suffering and humiliation. I was told that it was right and proper for me as a boy to pay attention to my teachers so that I should do well at my study of grammar and get on in the world. <laughs> that's the opening of the next section. I just think that's funny. Others, like Rousseau, uh, Wittgenstein, who cites uh, Augustine, with some criticism, and uh, Ian McGilchrist, a little more recently, think the origins of human speech lie in music. What is strange is that when examining the fossils of the earliest human skeletons from long before we believe language arose, it reveals canal sizes almost indistinguishable from those of modern humans. The most likely explanation is that there existed some kind of nonverbal language, one in which there was intonation and phrasing, but no actual words. And what is that, if not music? Quoted from Master and his Emissary. But the musical pun I meant comes from the jig, which is the movement at the end of each of the Bach cello suites. It's spelled 
like the name Gig from Mother One in some spellings, G-I-G-U-E. I never knew how to pronounce this until I listened to Yo-Yo Ma's Tiny Desk Concert. You can find this on YouTube. And he pronounces it the same as the word Jig. And he should know if anyone does. So, as for Gigas, the Jig is up. <laughs> the prayers, including the players, emphasize the connection between the world's peoples and Earthbound's extended coda after defeating Gigas gives you the chance to revisit nearly all of the places and people you saw on your adventure. Nearly all. The end of the world has been averted, the good has won out, and many characters you can return to talk to again, reflect on what this means. The first to depart home is Pooh, using Psy Farewell, which drops those gift boxes containing letters, including the one I cited from Mama, from the sky. Then, Jeff appears to hug Paula and Ness, and says goodbye, as sappy as anything, since he wants to spend some time there in Saturn Valley with his dad. Then it looks like a Mr. Saturn comes in for a hug, too. Then Paula asks you, Ness, to escort her home, sounding a note that will be repeated. It's time to go back to just being a regular kid. You can read those letters from Tony, though he asks you not to, from your mom and the preschool kids, and you can talk to everyone around, all of them saying something worth hearing, which should give you the hint, the idea, to explore. There are exceptions, again, places you can't return to, like Moonside, Magicant. Once you drop Paula off, as she leaves, saying that she had something to say, but has forgotten it for now, but she'll remember it next time. After that, you can't ask her to rejoin you, or ask her to tell you what it was, though it is sort of the next time you're seeing her. Uh, the next time. Like the next time you'll see Pokey or the Runaway Five. It's just something that you'll have to imagine. It's not in this game. Having saved the world, it turns out something is lost. And within this world's confines, far from everything is possible. After you save the world, you can no longer save the game. Instead, your dad says he's looking forward to seeing you on your birthday. You can never get to it, your birthday, by staying in the game, though. No more time passes here. You can go nowhere new. You can gain no more levels. It's time to go home, with all that that means. In an echo of Dr. Andonut's warning before you took the phase distorter, your mom asks if you're sure you're ready to look at the photo album, which will be yet another sort of time travel. There's many more people you can go talk to first, and some fun things that you can do, and maybe we'll mention some of them next week. But I'll close this episode with just a few remarks on the credits. When you agree to look at the photo album, you don't do it right away. First up is the cast list. It's the way actors come out to take a bow after the play. While a new hit song from the Runaway Five plays, characters scroll by, grouped by their locations and relationships. As mentioned, Pokey is the first who doesn't stay still, but leaves his family and shows up next to Carpenter and Monitoli. The Mani Mani statue, 
appears next to them as well, as well as by Lyre Exaggerate, and yet never moves. Uh, the Mr. Saturns stand in the pattern of the star in front of the Sphinx, though the Sphinx isn't there. And the phase distorter materializes in the middle of them. The flying men all rise from their graves. The townspeople gather without captions. The ringing phone is your dad, and Ness has the name you gave him, likely your own. He remains when the others have all gone by, dropping down below to hold up the peace sign, victory V, of photo fame. And here the rock and roll sax trails off, the screen fades to dark, and the photo man spins down to the center of it. He brings out his old-fashioned camera from the side, hesitates behind it, then snaps the final photo. It's of Ness, posing for it, but also of the player, who stands between Ness and the photographer on the threshold of the world of the game and the world outside it. In this liminal space, the credits roll and the photos taken throughout the game slide below the names of real people who made it. Theme song, playing from here on out, begins by reprising the soundstone melody, then moves into a clear, sweet rendition of the home and town theme. Taken together, this is Smiles and Tears. It's fully orchestrated with dramatic key changes and all that, and Itoi even wrote some lyrics for it, though these only appear uh, three words of it uh, that made it into the game. I miss you, which is in English. The rest are in Japanese, but are translated here on uh, Earthbound Central, uh, the project of, of um, Clyde Mandolin, who made the uh, Legends of Localization book. So on Earthbound Central, you can find this, the Smiles and Tears lyrics. They go like this. I haven't lived even half as long as adults have, but I do have plenty of memories in my backpack. My favorite baseball cap, my sneakers with worn out heels. Deep in my pocket is my worn-down guitar pick. There were some things sad enough to make tears come out, but you were always by my side. I thought of the two of us as just friends the whole time. I probably loved you without ever realizing it. We walked while we laughed, played, and got hurt. I realized it as we took shortcuts and went in circles, that even if you can't believe in everyone, you can't cast aside a heart you do believe in. You made me stronger just being who you are, like a gentle wind blowing and swaying the grass. You always walked with a smile. Yes. The two who shared smiles and tears one after the other, I miss you, are now far apart. And with that, the final name in the credits, player, yours, scrolls by right at the end of the song, so that you are recognized as an integral part in making the game anew each time you play, far apart as those times may be. And then, for a moment, it looks as if the game is caught in a circle. It's nighttime again, 
and again there's an annoying knock at the door. Ness, in his jammies, goes to open it, and this time Picky pops in. A letter arrived from my brother Pokey. It is addressed to Ness. There's no stamp, and it's not time for the mailman to come. Anyway, I brought it over. It says, come and get me, loser, spankity, spankity, spankity. I wonder where he is. The end? So that's the end? With block caps, dot, 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 question mark? The freeze by the front door, pondering Pokey's taunt in this final letter, delivered to his brother, but addressed to Ness, wondering where your neighbor is. We'll fill in some of that enigmatic ellipse and that intriguing question mark next week. Till then, take care.